Good evening and happy Thursday, everybody. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of sunny, well, not so sunny today, Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state, and that means if you think you have a paranormal problem, we can get to you. It might take us a little bit, but we can get to you. It's a big state. Anyway, I want to welcome you. Um, tonight, we're doing something special. We, we, we've been reading out of a uh, Christmas-themed winter book for the past, what, 10 nights, nine nights? And we usually do it every, we usually do it every Sunday. But Thursday, you know, we're getting close to the new year. I want to try and start out fresh uh, after the new year with going back to the Salem Witch Trial book. So I'm trying to kind of push this one. Sylvia Schultz wrote this one, and it's a collection of, there's Christmas stories in here, there's ghost stories, there's murder and mayhem in here and different kind of tragedy in here but it's all about the christmas season and winter you know winter solstice and, and all the all the cold weather stories nights are short was it nights are longer days are shorter that that sort of thing so tonight i decided to read from the book and continue um i, I believe it's going to be tonight and sunday which is new year's day will be the last read on this book i think i'm not positive so i hope you enjoy it as much as i do People tend to like to listen to this stuff, as, you know, as they're eating or whatever. And like my normal um, intro says, uh, you know, eat your dinner, do whatever, and listen to what I'm reading. And if you like what you hear, you like the book and all that, please be sure to like it and uh, subscribe, subscribe at YouTube. And please be sure to like it and follow me on Facebook. Okay, because I'm over there. Also, Instagram under Ghosty Gal. That's who I am on Instagram. So if you like what you hear, do, please do follow me over there. And I'm also on TikTok at California Haunts, which is a lowercase, and Cal Haunts at Twitter. Okay. Anyway, so tonight we're going to read from this book. And um, let me grab it here on my antiquated tablet. <laughs> and the book is called The Spirit of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays. Okay, so we're going to continue. And uh, here we go. The Tickling Terror. Billy Plummer snugged the covers up under his chin. He was finding it hard to fall asleep on that December night in 1939. He sighed, then turned over. Suddenly, he jerked. I'm just checking something real quick. Okay. It felt like his wife, Gert, was tickling his feet. Startled, he yelled out, Hey, knock it off. A sleepy mumble in his ears. Billy looked over at Gert, who was just waking up out of a sound sleep. Then her eyes widened and she twitched away from him. Billy, gosh, stop. That's mean. I hate being tickled. Gert, I didn't do. Ah, Billy squirmed. I said stop. I didn't touch you. I've been asleep. Then Gert made a face and clambered out of bed. If you didn't touch me and I didn't touch you, we need to check the bed for bugs. Billy sprang out of bed at the mention of bugs, and switched on the light. Together, Billy and Gert stripped the bed. Sheets, pillowcases, even the mattress pad landed on the floor after a good shaking. No bugs, thank goodness, Gert said. Two pairs of hands made short work of putting the bed back together. The couple lay down, their fears calmed, to enjoy a peaceful night's sleep. They got no such thing. The invisible entity tickled them unmercifully. The plumbers giggled, cried, moaned, squirmed, pleaded. Eventually, the entity relented and allowed the exhausted couple a few hours of sleep. At four o'clock in the morning, a thump rattled the bed frame, jerking Billy and Gert from an uneasy doze. 
Billy slapped the light switch, but no one was in the room with them. At least, not one they could see. A symphony of taps, rattles, and bangs played up and down the bed frame. For months, the strange nocturnal noises continued. One night in February, a deep voice came from somewhere underneath the bed. Is the baby asleep? Gert shot from the bed into the baby's room. To her immense relief, their infant son was sound asleep. In mid-March, Billy decided to try an experiment. He twisted a copper wire under one of the bed springs and ran it to a gas pipe in the kitchen. That night, for the first time in months, the plumber slept peacefully. They woke the next morning refreshed and rested. The next night, the tickling and thumping was back in full force. Billy had had enough. So had Gert. On the first warm spring day, Billy took the bed apart and hauled it off to the Wichita dump. A new bed was a small price to pay for a good night's sleep. Next up, the perfect Christmas tree. Mr. and Mrs. Haas Cutler had been out all that winter's day. They'd been on the hunt for the perfect Christmas tree. Mr. Haas Cutler, Dennis, well, if it were up to him, he'd have gotten one picked out in an hour, maybe less. A tree was a tree, long as it looked okay. But the missus, she was mighty picky about some things, and today she was being almighty picky about her tree. This one was too small, that one too short. This one here was already dropping needles, for heaven's sake. That one, oh, that one just wasn't full enough. None of the trees would do at all. Dennis was getting hungry, which was making him cranky. Truth be told, it was his wife's particularness making him cranky, but he loved his wife and wanted to see her happy. So he put up with it. He did manage to convince her that they should give up the search for the perfect Christmas tree just for that afternoon. They could go out later, even the next day. But miracle of miracles, as they drove home, the wife spotted it. There it was, the perfect Christmas tree. There was only one teeny tiny problem with it. It was smack in the middle of a cemetery, growing right out of a grave. But it was the perfect tree, the wife insisted. Dennis couldn't believe she was asking, truly honestly telling him to cut a tree down in the cemetery. But the wife just had to have it. After all, it was the perfect Christmas tree. So, grumbling the whole way, Dennis tromped into the cemetery, hack-swish-hacked hack the tree down, dragged it out of the cemetery, and push-pulled it on top of the car and tied it down. There. He got in the car and started it, already thinking of a hot bowl of soup at home. The road home was, was a winding country road. Coming around an especially tricky curve, the couple saw something strange. There was a man standing beside an old-fashioned horse and buggy, sort of halfway in the road. Dennis hit the brakes, and they made their way around the fellow blocking the road. Just as they got past him, though, man, horse, and buggy all vanished. Well, of course, that was very strange, but they didn't stop to investigate. But just before they reached home, they saw the horse and buggy again, with the man glaring at them. This time, they saw it on a ridge, silhouetted against the afternoon sky. They blinked, and it was gone. When they got home, the husband untied the tree, brought it in, set it up in the stand, and gave it a good healthy drink of water for its trunk. Then he trudged off to the kitchen to find something to eat. The wife was over the moon with her perfect Christmas tree. She dragged out all the boxes of decorations and set about trimming the tree. She put on strings of lights and garland and took out all her favorite ornaments, 
reliving fond memories of Christmas's past as she went. It didn't take her a terribly long time to decorate the tree, and soon she stepped back to admire her work. That's when she saw it. An ornament she certainly hadn't put there. Something near the top of her perfect Christmas tree. A small ornament in the shape of a man and a horse and buggy. The woman shrieked with horror for, for her husband to come take a look. They both peered at the ornament and realized, both together, that the man looked an awful lot like the fellow they'd seen twice on their way home. They got the funny feeling, looking at the tiny man, that he wanted to talk. The wife, her voice quavering, asked him what he wanted. And the little man told them. In life, he'd been a selfish, horrible man. And the only thing he'd ever done right in his life was to cut down pine trees and give them away for folks to folks for Christmas. But that he hadn't that but that hadn't been enough to save him from the thought of hellfire damnation for the other bad parts of his life. Many years before, he'd been killed in a buggy crash. He lived just long enough to breathe his last instructions to his family. They must plant a pine tree on his grave. The tree would symbolize his generous acts, and so he'd eventually work his way into heaven. The day he was buried, his family honored his last wish and planted a seedling pine on his grave. Over the years, it had grown tall and strong. It had grown to the perfect Christmas tree. And then, after all this time, all those years of the tree growing, all those years of the man hoping to get into heaven at last, after all that, this selfish, ignorant, uncaring woman had come along and stolen his tree, a tree that, in life, he would willingly have cut down and given to her. She had cut down a special tree. There would be no forgiveness for such a crime. Strangely enough, the man didn't blame the husband, who had actually been the one to cut down the tree. He knew it was the wife's doing. The little man's voice grew fainter as he spoke, as if he were on the verge of leaving. He blamed her one last time for destroying his hope of getting into heaven. The last thing the little man told her was that the wife would suffer for the rest of her life for her thoughtlessness and disrespect. But, he added, a grim note in his voice, she wouldn't have to suffer for long. When the pine tree was dead, she too would die. The little man's prophecy came true. Despite their best, best efforts to keep the tree alive, it died. And a month to the day after the tree was cut, so did the wife. Next up, a rose for her hair. In September 1908, the Harrell family moved into a big three-story mansion in Nor Norfolk, Virginia. Son Eddie, an only child, was given the bedroom on the third floor at the front of the house, but as he was away at a private school, he didn't use the room right away. Another third-floor room, the one down the hallway from Eddie's, was assigned to the family's two servants to share. But very soon after they moved in, both servants came to Mrs. Harrell and asked to be moved to a different room. Something felt wrong in that room, they said. Strange. Strange noises, unintelligible conversations, just below a whisper, furniture moving by itself. Mrs. Harrell told the servants they were just being foolish, but being a kind and considerate employer, she soon relented and let them move out of the haunted room. They had no problems in their new quarters. Eddie Harrell came home for his holiday break a week before Christmas. He settled into his room and slept there peacefully, peacefully until New Year's Eve. That night, Eddie was woken during the night by the overhead light turning on by itself. Groggily, he opened his eyes and saw a young woman standing next to the window. 
She was beautiful, dressed in white, with a brilliant red rose tucked into her black hair. On see, one hand was at her temple, as if to shield her eyes from the light. Still, have a sleep. Eddie mumbled to the girl and asked what she wanted. At the sound of his voice, the girl vanished, and the lights went out. At breakfast the next morning, Eddie told his parents what had happened. Mr. and Mrs. Harrell passed the experience off as a dream, but, too nonchalantly, asked Eddie not to mention the dream to his servants. At Easter, the Harrells had an out-of-town guest visiting. While sitting at breakfast, the friend happened to glance out into the hallway and saw a young lady in white pass by the open hall door and go up the stairs. The friend was able to describe the lady quite clearly as she was wearing a dress of white lace with caplet sleeves and a train, and she wore a single red rose in her shining black hair. Later that night, Eddie saw the ghost for the second time. This time, he managed to ask the young lady who she was and what she wanted. The spirit again vanished, but at the same instant, he heard a woman's voice urge, Wait. After that, the apparition was only seen at Christmas holidays. The last time anyone saw the pretty ghost was during Eddie's senior year. Family was visiting for the holidays, and Eddie's cousin was supposed to sleep in the servant's old room. But during the holiday party, the men of the family had used it as their smoking room, so Mrs. Harrell decided to put the cousin in Eddie's bedroom instead. Eddie agreed to sleep in the room the servant so feared. The Harrells decided not to tell the cousin about the ghost in Eddie's room, hoping she'd sleep soundly. Eddie, as agreed, went to sleep in the servant's old room down the hall. He fell asleep without incident, but once again, he was woken up in the middle of the night by the overhead lights coming on. And once again, he saw the young woman in white, in white lace, standing by the window. This time, her hands were over her face. Eddie quietly got out of bed, but as soon as his feet hit the floor, the spirit was gone. After yet another visit from the beautiful young ghost, Eddie couldn't sleep. He sat up in a chair and read for a while. He nodded off over the book and slept through the rest of the night in the chair. At breakfast, the cousin told the Heralds about the strange vision she'd had the night before. She woke up to find her overhead light on. She could see through the walls she, she could see through the walls that separated her room from the one Eddie was using. You were in your nightshirt and you were sitting in a chair with a book in your hands. There was a woman in white standing behind you, as if she was reading over your shoulder. The cousin described the woman exactly the way the Easter guest had done years before. The rose fell out of her hair, the cousin added. It was lying on the floor by the chair, and then the whole scene vanished. After breakfast, Eddie and his father snuck upstairs to the room where Eddie had spent the night. On the floor next to the chair was a fresh-cut red rose. Shortly after this, Mr. Harrell passed away unexpectedly and the family moved out of the house. Eddie never found out who the young lady was or why she had appeared to him, but he kept the rose in a bell jar. He wrote that half, he wrote that half a century later, the stem and leaves had withered, but the blossom looked as fresh as it had, as if it had been cut that day, instead of being dropped by a ghost 50 years before. He never removed the glass cover or even thought of touching the rose's satiny petals for fear it would crumble into dust. Eternal love. Excuse me. <laughs> Jubal Reeves was a mountain man, and he had a mountain-sized heart, too. He was the friendliest, kindest man of anyone in, these, in those hills and hollers. Jubal was always ready to lend his neighbors a helping hand, 
but he saved his truest devotion for his family, his beautiful wife, Rebecca, and their four children. The little ones ranged from 10 years old down to the three-year-old baby. There were two girls, Hannah and Sarah, and two boys, Laban and David. Jubal doted on his children and their mother. He was constantly doing little things to show his affection for them. He dug flower beds for Rebecca around their cabin and filled them with the colors of nature and picked bouquets for her every time a new blossom opened. He carved little toys for the children from chunks of wood, smoothing the splinters and rough edges carefully, mindful of tender little hands. He hung swings in the trees so the children would, would, have, a lonely, would have a lovely place to play. Whenever he made the trek down to the general store for supplies, he made sure to pick up to pick something up for his family. Penny candy for the children and a bolt of cloth for Rebecca. She was an excellent seamstress and took pride in keeping her growing family well clothed. And when they attended Sunday services in their small mountain church, Jubal would sit, eyes closed, a smile on his face, as he listened to Rebecca lift her voice in worshipful song, as if he were hearing angels sing. Jubal and Rebecca had been married for about 12 years when tragedy came to the family. During an exceptionally cold winter, influenza struck the mountain community. Jubal and Rebecca nursed other families until the evening they came home and found their own children sick. Little David, the baby of the family, died before morning the next day. Rebecca fell ill at about the time they lost David. Ten-year-old Hannah passed next. Rebecca lived long enough to know that Hannah had died before she herself passed away. Left without his partner and soulmate, Jubal tried to keep a six to keep six-year-old Sarah and eight and eight-year-old Laban alive, but the strain of grief and loss was too much for him, and he took sick too. By the time the doctor came, Sarah and Laban were gone, and Jubal was delirious with fever. Jubal lay in a coma for a week before his fever broke. During that time, his neighbors did what folks back then did for each other. They took care of the laying out and burying of Jubal's loved ones, but Jubal was far too sick to say his final goodbyes. It was another few days before Jubal was able enough to open his eyes and ask about Rebecca and the children. As gently as they could, the neighbors broke the shattering news. Rebecca, Hannah, Laban, Sarah, and David were all dead, buried in the yard near one of the flower beds Jubal had put in for his wife's enjoyment. Jubal didn't believe him, believe them. He refused to believe them. The doctor pronounced Jubal out of danger. The neighbors went home, their sad duty done. If Jubal lived alone in the cabin for a while, they figured he would be he would in time come to accept his loss. But it was not as easy as that. That spring, Jubal Reeves came down from his cabin to the general store. He was still very weak and deathly pale, but he was determined to make the trip to the store. His reason for it became clear when he asked the storekeeper for five yards of, of gig and cloth. Rebecca wants to make new spring dresses for the girls, Jubal told the astonished storekeeper. They're just growing like weeds, and best throw in some stick candy for the little ones, too. The storekeeper, startled, asked Jubal if he really wanted all that, after what had happened. Jubal gave the man a puzzled look in return, as if he honestly had no idea what the man was talking about. The storekeeper didn't have the heart to try to explain. In the end, he just sold Jubal the cloth and the candy along with his other supplies. As time went on, Jubal became even more fixed in his delusion. Occasionally, some neighbor would try to convince him that Rebecca and the children were waiting for him in heaven. 
but Jubal would never listen to such talk. He lived as if Rebecca and their children were right, where, right there with him, and they were living their lives all together as a family. He'd wash clothes and hang them, dry, hang them to dry. He cooked for a family of six. He set the table for the meal, then washed all the dishes afterwards. And once a year, he'd ask a neighbor woman to sew new dresses for Rebecca, Sarah, and Hannah, but always in the sizes they'd been when they died. The neighbor woman was kind and patient, and she faithfully made the dresses as Jubal asked. Many years later, when Jubal was old and feeble, a stranger happened to pass by the cabin. It was Christmas time, and the stranger was on his way to a nearby home and needed directions. He knocked on the door, and Jubal let him in. The cabin was brightly lit and freshly clean for the holidays. The stranger could see that Jubal was in the middle of setting the table for six. The cabin was festively decorated, and the good smells of, of cooking filled the air. Jubal was dressed in clean clothes, ready for a holiday celebration. He gave the stranger the directions he needed, and the man went on his way. The stranger passed by Jubal's cabin again on his way down the mountain, a couple of hours later. He was about to knock on the door again. He thought he might wish the old man a Merry Christmas, and maybe warm himself at, at Jubal's fire for a bit. But something stopped him from raising his knuckles to the door. He could hear voices in the cabin, the giggles of young children, Jubal's happy voice as he played with them, then a woman's voice, the most beautiful he'd ever heard, come to his ears. She was singing an old mountain carol, and it sounded like angels singing. The stranger decided not to interrupt such a cozy family gathering, so he let his hand fall and turned away. He rode back down the mountain. It was some time later that he heard the story of Jubal's losses, and of his insistence that his family was still that his family still lived. That was Jubal's last Christmas with his family. He died at the end of summer the next year, just when the leaves began to turn. His neighbors found him sitting in a chair near Rebecca's flower beds. They buried him with his family right there in the yard. Mountain legends say that maybe Jubal's devotion to his family was so strong that it brought them back from beyond the veil to spend to spend that one last Christmas with him. And when the mountain folk want to pay someone the very highest compliment. They say they have a love, like the love of Jewel Reeves. Pretty cool. Guides in the Snow It was just a couple of days before Christmas, 1860. Dr. John O'Brien, a country doctor practicing in rural Missouri, had just sat down to supper with his wife, Elizabeth. The meal Elizabeth had made was perfect fare for a cold, blustery winter's night. Hot fried chicken, buttery mashed potatoes, and bread fresh out of the oven. But Dr. O'Brien could only pick out his food. The young doctor was famous in the area for his intuition, a sense that went far beyond duty to his patients. And that intuition was, was niggling at him now, telling him to visit one of his patients. Mrs. Kilpatrick had, a heart, had heart trouble, and if she was in distress, Kara couldn't wait until morning. O'Brien set his fork down and explained to Elizabeth that he had to go see his patient. Elizabeth nodded her, nodded her understanding, but cast a worried glance at the snow spitting across the window, or against the window. O'Brien dressed warmly for the ride, but even so the blizzard's winds swirled fiercely around him, cold fingers seeking a way into his heavy overcoat and under his thick woolen scarf. He made his way to the stable and hitched his sturdy horse to the buggy. 
The howling winds and driving snow hit him full force when he turned out of his lane and onto the road. O'Brien gripped the reins with his fur-lined gloves and urged the horse forward, praying that the beast could keep his footing on the slippery road. The familiar landmarks were buried under drifts of snow. O'Brien peered through the swirling flakes, trying to see the turn he had to take to get to the zigzag path to the Kirkpatrick's house. His sense of duty to his patients robbed, but the storm raged fiercely around him. If he took the wrong road, he'd be wandering the countryside for hours in the cold and dark. Should he just give up and head for home? Just then, he heard a noise under the howl of the wind. It sounded like the barking of a dog, a big dog. No, not just one. There were two of them. Then in the shallow pool, then in the shallow pool of yellow light cast by his buggy lantern, O'Brien saw them. They were two big black dogs. God only knew what breed, and on each side of his horse. The horse snorted and stamped, but didn't bolt from the huge piece. The dogs barked again and bounded off through the snow, their shaggy black bodies easy to see as they moved through the white drifts. They must belong to some family around here, O'Brien thought, as he touched the horse into a fast walk. He didn't remember the Kirkpatricks, the, the, Kill, sorry, the, the Kilpatricks, having big dogs like these. But maybe they were working animals not allowed indoors. The dogs kept up their barking, looking back over their shoulders, almost as if they were making sure O'Brien was following them. The doctor decided to trust his intuition once again, and he followed the big black dogs. The dogs waited patiently for the bucky to catch up, leading the horse down the winding road to the Kirkpatrick's home. Kilpatrick's home. I want to say Kirkpatrick. O'Brien doubted he would have found the turnoff without the dog's help. Finally, the light glimmered in the distance, and the doctor allowed himself a sigh of relief. Moments later, he recognized the Kilpatrick's house. He pulled up, parked his buggy in the shed with the pat for his, for his faithful horse, and went up and knocked on the door. Mr. Kilpatrick opened the door. Dr. O'Brien, what on earth? The doctor shrugged out of his snow-crusted overcoat. I had a feeling, that's all. How is Mrs. Kilpatrick? Not well, I'm afraid. That intuition of yours is sure a blessing. We owe you thanks for coming out on such a vicious night. The doctor warmed his hands briefly at the fire, then went in to see his patient. As her husband had said, Mrs. Kilpatrick was doing poorly. Her breathing was labored, and her color wasn't good. O'Brien reached for her wrist and felt for her pulse. Thank God you're here, doctor, the woman mumbled. I had the strangest dream about you. Dreamed you were driving in a storm with two great black beasts at your side. Her voice trailed off as O'Brien stared at her, numbly. He noted her low, thready pulse. He turned to his bag and rummaged through it, looking for the packet of heart medicine. He mixed it in water and eased his patient up to drink it. Soon, her breathing eased. Her pulse grew steady as she drifted into sleep. It was then that O'Brien realized that he hadn't heard the dogs bark in some time. As he gratefully accepted a late meal from Mr. Kilpatrick, O'Brien asked him about his dogs. The man shrugged. He didn't own dogs like that, nor did anyone in the area. The doctor spent the night watching over his patient. The next morning, Christmas, Christmas Eve, she was well out of danger. As O'Brien drove home, he kept a sharp watch for the black dogs. He even whistled and shouted for them a few times, but they had vanished with the blizzard's winds. He never saw the dogs again. Mrs. Pickman's Ghost
Max Cubis lay awake in bed that early December night in 1913. There was a real Wisconsin blizzard howling around the house. The winds piling the snow into deep drifts. But something else was keeping him from sleep. A faint scratching sound coming from somewhere in the house. It wasn't on the second floor where the family slept. It seemed to be coming from the first floor. It sounded like someone walking around in slippered feet, pacing the night away in the darkness. Max couldn't stand it any longer. He got out of bed, careful not to wake his wife, Julia. He tiptoed quietly across the room. He held his breath as he reached for the doorknob. He didn't want the squeak of he didn't want the squeak of the opening door to wake Julia or the two girls, Helen and Helen and Armelia, who slept peacefully in the bedroom across the hall. The moment his hand touched the doorknob, a terrible pounding on the front door echoed through the house. Julia sat bolt upright with a yelp, and the girls called out from their room. Max thought briefly about going to answer the door, but before he could take a step outside the bedroom, the front door crashed open, and heavy footsteps trampled through the front hallway into the kitchen. Julia and the girls joined Max as he stood in the upstairs hallway, trying to summon the courage to peer over the banister. Who's there? Max demanded, as his wife and daughters huddled close to him. I'm going to see what's going on, Max muttered. Julia and the girls followed him closely as he cautiously went to the stairs, flipped on the light, and went down to the first floor. They searched the entire house, but found no one. As the month wore on, the winter grew fiercer. One night, sometime later, Julia slipped out of bed before dawn to add more wood to the bedroom stoves. She was halfway across the room when a misty figure materialized next to the stove. The figure coalesced into an apparition of an elderly woman who held her hands out to the stove as if trying to warm them. The ghost vanished moments later. The Cubist family decided to investigate the, the history of their home. Perhaps a former resident had returned home. The old lady at the wood stove and the nocturnal prowler might possibly be the same spirit. Max and Julia learned from their neighbors that their house had been the lifelong home of an old woman named Mrs. Alex Pickman. She had loved him her Milwaukee home and had always told her husband and relatives that she fully intended to return there as a ghost. She had recently died and was buried in Omaha, Nebraska. Apparently, she hadn't forgotten her promise to haunt her former home. During the next few weeks, Mrs. Pickman continued to visit her old house, always between midnight and 1 a.m. The front door would slam open as if to announce the spook's arrival. Then footsteps would pace the house as Mrs. Pickman made her nightly rounds. The family also heard the ghost wheezing alarmingly as though Mrs. Pickman was trying to catch her breath. The neighbors nodded knowingly. In life, Mrs. Pickman had had an as asthmatic condition. On Monday, on, on one night, though, the ghost changed its habits. The Cubist girls, Helen and Armelia, were fast asleep at midnight. Suddenly they were jolted awake by the thud of a body hitting their bed, followed by the commotion of someone invisible scrambling to get under the covers. The girls fled from the room, screaming bloody murder. Their resident old lady ghost was behaving like a rowdy eight-year-old at a sleepover. The Cubist family had had quite enough. The very next morning, Max told Julia and the girls to pack their bags. They moved all their belongings out of the house that day. Well, almost all of them. In their hurry to get out of the haunted house, the family left behind the clock that sat on the mantel. Julia Cubis remembered it the next day and went back for it in daylight. When she picked it up, she found that it had stopped at midnight. 
Haunts of Heartland. There's a lot of strangeness tucked away in the wild corners of New England. One of these places in the, is the ravine between Garvin and Heartland Hills in Vermont. These black roads are haunted by a commune of hippie ghosts. In 1971, so the story goes, five young men and two women rented a house nearby Christmas break. They were wealthy college students from out of state, and they told people they were there to go skiing at Woodstock. Parentheses, according to the locals, they were really there to smoke pot, a lot of pot, end parentheses. Whatever the reason, they, they were there on vacation. But tragedy struck when the house caught fire. No one knows how the blaze began, but it took mere moments for the flames to engulf the place. The seven students inside were too dazed to react, much less to escape. All of them were killed in the fire. Even today, locals driving the back roads around the land report seeing ghostly long-haired figures along the side of the road. One witness, a Mr. Sawyer, was a bit more detailed in telling of his experience. He says he saw a ghostly figure running down the road, holding a flaming chair in his arms, eternally trying to escape his fiery fate. The Things We Do for Love The city of New Orleans is crawling with ghosts at every time, at every time of the year. These specters represent the same vivid cross-section of humanity that throngs the streets of this vibrant city in life. There is a house on the 700 block of Royal Street that features a rooftop ghost, a phantom that is, shall we say, NSFW. The spirit is that of a young, pretty slave girl who fell hopelessly in love with a Creole man. The young man was handsome, but he apparently had a vicious streak. He promised to marry the young slave if she proved her devotion to him by spending the night on the roof of his house, stark naked. The girl was so besotted with that one night soon after she actually did as he demanded. She stripped off all her clothes and lay down to spend the night. Unfortunately, she was too impatiently love-struck to wait for warm weather. It was a cold December night when she lay down. She never got up. Her would-be husband found her on his rooftop the next morning, frozen to death. Neighbors say that when December nights turn especially chilly, the young slave girl comes back still trying to prove her undying love for her intended. She still wanders the rooftop of that house, her little nude form backlit against the starry sky. Excuse my stomach, guys. It just does that. The Christmas rosebud, or the Christmas rosebush. In West Virginia, many years ago, there lived a family by the name of Alt. They weren't a large family. In fact, they were only, there were only three of them. Mr. and Mrs. Jim Alts and their daughter Anna. They were a happy, prosperous family with but one blot on their blessed lives. Anna Alts was quite sickly, and no doctor could explain the illness. One night in early December, Anna suddenly got up from her bed. Her parents were astounded. Anna had been bedridden for, bedridden for most of her young life. Dreamily, as if in a trance, Anna threw back the covers, went to the door, and walked outside. Her parents followed, her mother wringing her hands with worry. Was Anna sleepwalking? Would it be wrong, even dangerous, to wake her? Anna wandered through the yard, her bare feet leaving small prints in the newly fallen snow. She came to a rose bush she had often gazed at through her bedroom window. Anna's strange journey out to the garden 
sacked what little strength she had. She sank to the frozen ground, her hand outstretched to the rose bush. Her mother and father rushed to her side, but it was too late. Anna was dead. Her parents were heartbroken at the loss of their only child, but they soon had a strange consolation. The rose bush began to bloom shortly after Anna's death. It continued to bloom all year long, all year round, even in the winter months. Even when the rose bush was covered in snow, beautiful red roses dotted the bush. Several years later, Jim Alt and his wife moved to a new home. They dug up the rose bush and took it with them as a reminder of their lost Anna. They replanted the rose bush in the yard of the new house, but to their sorrow, it didn't bloom that spring, summer. Too. Summer, too, came in with plentiful sunshine and rain, but still the rose bush didn't bloom. The old sphere of the rose bush had died. In early December that year, on the, on the anniversary of Anna's death, a light snow fell. The next morning, Mrs. Alts looked out the window and shrieked. Anna's rose bush was gone. Mr. and Mrs. Alts rushed outside to see what had happened. The rose bush had indeed disappeared, and small footprints in the dusting of, of new snow led away from the spot where it had stood. The grieving parents followed the footprints. They had to know. Who would dig up their daughter's beloved rosebush? They traced the footprints all the way to their end and stopped, gazing at the scene in wonder. The footprints led straight to the cemetery and stopped at Anna's gravesite. There, on their daughter's grave, stood the rosebush. It was covered with beautiful red roses in full bloom. Please help. Many years ago, Dr. Anderson was awakened by a frantic pounding on his front door. He dressed quickly and hurried down to answer it. The moon shone brightly on the white snow and on the young girl standing on the doctor's front porch. The doctor wondered briefly why she was out so late. It was past midnight, and the girl couldn't have been more than 12 or 13 years old. He didn't recognize her. She was dressed in a blue coat, and her shaking hands were thrust into a white muff. Please help me, the girl begged through chattering teeth. It's my mother. She's very sick and I'm afraid she'll die. The girl explained that she and her mother had recently moved into the old holster place, hostler place, about three miles away. Her father was dead, and it was just the two of them now. I think she's got pneumonia, the girl said. Please, you've got to come see her. At the dreaded word pneumonia, the doctor gave a short, sharp nod. Of course I'll come. I'll just be a moment. The girl turned and darted away, heading for the old hot hostler place. The doctor, sh the doctor shrugged into his good sheepskin coat, grabbed his bag, and went to the barn to settle his horse. As the horse trotted down the road, the doctor mused at the bravery of the young girl, who had ventured out after midnight in the bitter cold to seek his help. He was sorry she'd run off before he could invite her into the warm-up just a bit. Into warm-up just a bit, sorry. The ride didn't take long. But Dr. Anderson was still chilled to the bone when he came inside of, of the farmhouse. He swung down, tied his horse to the gatepost, and hurried up the walk. No one answered his knock, so he eased the door open and came in. A woman lay huddled in a bed, wheezing and shivering. The doctor turned up the oil lamp and set to work. If he could break the fever, the woman might live. He trickled medicine down the woman's throat, then poked fire to life so, so he could heat water for hot, for hot medicines. 
He worked for a couple of hours, and soon the woman stirred back to lucidity. How did you know to come? she asked, as she accepted a cup of something hot and steaming from the doctor. Your daughter came to my house to fetch me. She was very brave to come out on foot on such a bitter night. The woman's face paled even further. My daughter died of pneumonia three years ago. But who could it have been? If it wasn't your daughter, how would she know you were ill? I tell you, there was a young girl, about 13 years old, who showed up on my porch. She was wearing a blue coat and a white muff. My daughter had a blue coat and a white muff, the woman whispered. They're hanging in the closet over there. Dr. Anderson strode to the closet and yanked open the door. There, hanging right in plain view, were a blue coat and white muff. With trembling hands, he reached out and tucked a finger inside the muff. The fur inside the white muff was damp from perspiration. Footprints in the Snow It was a cold winter afternoon early in the last century. A mother huddled in her cabin on the west fork of the Little Pigeon River in Tennessee. She held, her, she held two of her children in a tight embrace, but one was missing. Her two-year-old son had wandered away from the cabin earlier that day. Since then, the temperature had been falling steadily, along with the heavy snow. A neighbor came in, stamping the snow from his boots to grab a few moments, warmth by the fire. The mother looked up, hope dawning briefly in her eyes, then looked back down, defeated. At the shake of the neighbor's head, I'm sorry, then looked down defeated at the shake of the neighbor's head. She was grateful, of course, that all the men folk were out looking for her precious little lost one. Word had been passed from cabin to homestead, from house to church, and soon the entire community was out looking. Her own husband was off in Europe in the trenches, fighting the Germans. All she could do was pray that one of the neighbors would find her little boy, and soon. Dr. Thomas appeared at the door of the cabin. He dressed warmly for the trudge through the woods. He'd come thinking to help the young mother. One look at her stricken face, though, and he realized that he could best help, not by doctoring her, but by finding her missing son. Pulling his heavy overcoat closed, he headed out into the snowstorm with the other searchers. Dr. Thomas struck off in a random direction, hoping he was looking at, at, hoping he was looking at ground that hadn't already been covered. With the snow falling so thickly, the footprints of the searching men were soon being covered over. Dr. Thomas held his lantern high in the gathering dusk as he scanned the area. The shadows of the evening crowded close under the pines as the last light of day slipped away. The doctor stopped for a moment, listening to the silence of the woods. Somewhere he knew men were searching for a little boy with dogs, but he hadn't yet heard the deep bay of a hound on a scent. All around him the snow fell in a silent hush. The branches of the pines swayed with the wind, even as laden with snow as they were. As night fell, the snowstorm grew worse. Hang on one second. Okay. Let me make sure I got this. I just it just jumped on me. Ah, there we go. Okay, as night fell, the snowstorm the snowstorm grew worse. Dr. Thomas trudged along the dwindling path of the woods, stopping every so often to look closely at any fallen log that might shelter a shivering little boy. His toes were beginning to go numb, even with the three pairs of thick woolen socks he wore. But he kept wandering. He kept wandering the woods, his lantern held high in search of any sign of the boy. If he was cold, 
the toddler would even would be even worse off. Dr. Thomas stopped and turned in a slow circle. He couldn't give up hope, not while the boy was still out there, lost in the storm. He held his lantern high, and there on the ground was one footprint. Dr. Thomas bent closer to study it. It wasn't the track of a deer or a dog. It was the footprint of a child, a child who was barefoot. The doctor's heart leapt, and adrenaline spun in his cold fingers and toes, warming them briefly. Finally, here was some sign of the boy. The doctor looked around carefully for more footprints. There was another one, and a third. The bare footprints were just visible in the hard-packed old snow, and as the doctor watched, more appeared, the feathery new snow blowing off the old prints. Carefully, the doctor followed the prints. As soon as he passed the last one, the next one appeared, leading him further into the woods. The doctor no longer cursed the biting wind, because oddly enough, the wind seemed to be blowing the fresh snow off of the prints, revealing the path the barefoot toddler had taken through the woods. Dr. Thomas followed the footprints as they led him to a patch of evergreens. The doctor lifted the low-hanging branch and gasped. There, curled up on a soft bed of fallen pine needles, was a young boy. But the doctor had come too late. The boy's skin was waxy white, and his little chest didn't rise and fall with peaceful sleeping breath. The boy had frozen to death in the storm. Dr. Thomas stifled a low moan and gathered the child up in his arms. He unbuttoned his coat and his woolen shirt and cradled the boy to his chest. The boy had died in the freezing cold. Although it was too late, the doctor could at least keep him warm for the sad walk home. He rebuttoned his coat and headed back to the cabin. As the doctor approached the cabin, the young mother came out to meet him. Seeing her there, silhouetted against the yellow glow of the lit cabin behind her, Dr. Thomas felt his spirits sink. How could he break this woman's heart? The mother caught sight of the doctor with his sad burden and ran to him. Dr. Thomas reached the open cabin door just as a woman came out, crying joyful tears at the return of her baby. The doctor unbuttoned his coat and opened his shirt. I'm so sorry. At least I found him. And to his shock, the little boy blinked sleepy brown eyes at him. The child turned his head, hearing his mother's cry of joy. Mama? Stunned, Dr. Thomas handed the toddler to his mother, who cuddled him fiercely. She looked up, tears of gratitude standing, tears of gratitude standing in her eyes. Thank you, doctor. Thank you so much. You saved my little boy. Please come inside and get warm. Excuse me. The doctor followed her in the cabin. His analytical mind fumbled for an explanation. The boy must have been chilled to the point where his vitals had slowed, putting him into a state of suspended animation. The walk back, cuddled against the doctor's warm chest and wrapped in the heavy overcoat, must have warmed the child slowly, enough for him to recover with no harm done. The gentle warming had brought the child back to life as surely as a violet blooms in the spring. Vaguely, he became aware that the boy's mother was still talking. I'm so grateful to you for finding him. She kissed the toddler, who sighed sleepily in her arms. Dr. Thomas round, roused himself from his thoughts. Yes, I followed his, foot, his footprints in the snow. I'm amazed he was able to wander so far with bare feet. Bare feet, the mother said, puzzled. But he's wearing shoes. Frowning, Dr. Thomas lifted one of the boy's feet. Sure enough, the boy was wearing sturdy brogans. I have to tie his shoes on tightly with double knots so he won't kick them off, the mother explained. 
Here, have some coffee. It'll warm you right up. Good job, a neighbor said, putting a tin cup into the doctor's hand. Dr. Thomas accepted the congratulations and heartfelt thanks of his neighbors. The little boy was safe. That was all that mattered. But the doctor's scientific mind wouldn't rest until he figured out the answer to the mystery. Several nights later, he woke from a sound sleep, sitting bolt upright in bed, reeling from a thunderclap of realization. The wind hadn't blown the fresh snow off of the child's footprints. The bare footprints had been appearing in the snow, step by step, as he'd been following them. He hadn't been tracking a living child. He'd been following an invisible child, a ghost or an angel. The Chicken Ghost One night in December 1943, a British airman stationed in London was out for a stroll. He was crossing Pond Square and Highgate when he heard a strange sound for, for the mid-20th century, the sound of carriage wheels on cobblestone. Then he heard an even more incongruous sound from a chilly December night in the middle excuse me, of London, the loud screech of a chicken. The airman looked around in confusion. He couldn't see a carriage, but he did see a chicken running in disoriented circles that's squawking with fright and probably also with cold, because this chicken had already been plucked. The airman took a few steps towards the bird, hoping to help the poor, shivering creature. But as he got closer, the chicken vanished. This chicken ghost has been seen in Highgate for over 300 years. It has a perfectly good reason to haunt Pond Square, and its story affects us even today. You see, that was the world's first frozen chicken, and it led to a revolution in food preservation. The story goes that in April 1626, Sir Francis Bacon was riding in a carriage through London with his friend Dr. Witherborn, a physician to James I. The sight of the snow-covered ground led to a discussion of the possible use of snow to preserve food. Looking out at the rolling wheels and the path left behind the carriage, Bacon pointed out to Witherborn that the wheels were packed with chunks of snow, and the grass revealed by the passing of the wheels, looked fresh and green, even in late winter. Bacon's friend belittled his theory. Irritated enough to want to prove his point immediately, Bacon ordered the carriage to stop. He trotted the nearest house and bought one of the household's chickens. He wrung the hen's neck, plucked it, cleaned it, and stuffed the carcass with snow. Then he packed more snow around the prepared bird. Bacon's experiment worked, and a new era in commercial food preservation was born. Unfortunately, Bacon's impetuous adventure in the snow led to his contracting pneumonia. He faded quickly and died on April 9, 1626. Soon after Sir Francis's death, visitors to Pond Square began to hear the squawking of a chicken about to be butchered, but no chicken was in sight. Then the audible became visible. People would see a plucked chicken running in confused circles before, the vanish before vanishing through a brick wall. The airman's experience in 1943 was just one in a series of naked chicken sightings down through the years. That's kind of cool. The Eternal Beetle The Dakota, the iconic hotel on the corner of Central Park West and 72nd Street, New York City, is a place that many New Yorkers call home. Several of them are ghosts. On December 8, 1980, John Lennon joined the ranks of the spirits who roam the Dakota's elegant hallways. Just outside the building's front entrance, Lennon was shot four times in the back and shoulder by Mark David Chapman. 
Lennon staggered a few steps, then collapsed near his frantic wife, Yoko Ono. The first reported sighting of Lennon's ghost was in 1983, when Amanda Moores and musician Joey Harrow saw Lennon standing in the archway at the Dakota's entrance, mere yards from where he'd been gunned down. Perhaps being so close to the scene of his murder had put Lennon in a pensive, even foul mood. Moores almost walked up to the Beatle to say hello, but she said the look on his face let her know he wasn't in the mood to chat with strangers. Lennon was in much better frame of mind when he showed up in his own apartment. Yoko Ono lived at the Dakota for 20 years after her husband's death. One day, she came into the living room to see Lennon's ghost sitting at his white piano. He turned to her and said, Don't be afraid, I'm still with you. Then he vanished. Before his death, Lennon claimed to have had his own paranormal experiences in Dakota. He told of seeing a phantom he called a crying lady who would pace the Dakota's hallways. Lennon was not alone. Many other witnesses have reported seeing the crying lady. She may have been the spirit of Elise Vesley, who was a manager of the building through the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Vesley herself, in real life, believed passionately in the paranormal. She even claimed to have telekinetic powers. Unfortunately, her son was hit and killed by a truck outside the Dakota. In response to the tragedy, Elise became very protective of the children in the hotel. This sense of responsibility may be why she still haunts the hall of the building. Home for the Holidays It became somewhat of a joking urban legend to claim that Elvis Presley is still alive and well in flipping burgers in a diner somewhere in East Podunk. As part of American culture, Elvis sightings are right up there with UFO encounters. But even with all the National Enquirer articles shouting otherwise, the undeniable fact remains that Elvis Presley did indeed die on August 16, 77, at Graceland in Memphis. So what sort of phantom Elvis are people seeing? The best guess is that it's just that simple people who claim an Elvis sighting are actually running into his ghost. The spirit of Elvis seems reluctant to leave this plane of existence. He appeared to an acquaintance, an elderly farmer named Claude Buchanan, just after he, Elvis, passed away. Claude said that before the news of Presley's death was announced, the figure of Elvis showed up and told him, I've come to say goodbye for a while, Claude. But one year, Elvis decided to go home for Christmas. On December 20th, 1980, a truck driver named Jack Matthews was taking a load to Memphis. About 100 miles outside the city, he picked up a hitchhiker. The night was dark, and the hitcher was just a dim form in the passenger seat. A hat pulled low over his face. But the hitcher didn't seem like a threat to Matthews. On the contrary, he was well-spoken and polite, just the kind of company you'd want on a long trip. In a light Tennessee drawl, he told Matthews that he was going to Memphis to see his mama and daddy for the holidays. The hours passed in pleasant conversation. They talked quite a bit about cars, and the hitchhiker mentioned that he owned several Cadillacs. Matthews took the boast, for surely that's what it was, with a, great, with a good-natured grin and a grain of salt or three. The truck rolled into Memphis, and in the glow of the streetlights, the hitchhiker's face began to seem somehow familiar to Matthews. The man asked to be dropped off on Elvis Presley Boulevard, and that's when the penny dropped for Matthews. His passenger looked start, startlingly like the lady retainer. Matthews found the boulevard and carefully pulled the 16-wheeler over to let his passenger out. 
He stuck out his hand to wish the guy a Merry Christmas and realized he never told his passenger his name. I'm Jack Matthews, by the way. The hitchhiker looked Matthews in the eye. I'm Elvis Presley, sir. Okay, I gotta check one thing, guys. Hang on. I got somebody texting me. Let me check everything here, see where I'm at. Okay, give me a second. It's funny because once you program your laptop to like trigger on, there we go. Let me do this here real quick. I got people like texting me and I want to make sure I get the messages straight. Okay. Okay. Let me get this down now. I'm blind, you guys. You know I'm blind. Let me see something real quick here. And we've got about four minutes left. And I might be able to squeeze in one more. So I'm trying to figure out. Let's see. Nope. Okay, we're not going to be able to squeeze in one more. Anyway, that's it for tonight. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that we had enough time to get to it, but we don't. So I want to thank you guys for listening tonight. And I'll be back on Sunday. And uh, we'll continue with this book. It's, it's been a really good book. I, I love the ghost stories. I'm really into reading, you know, other ghost stories and stuff. I just love it. But I want to thank you guys for coming. And I really appreciate it. And uh I will see you tomorrow with Nancy Matz, and Nancy Matz is going to be doing predictions. So it's going to be kind of kind of fun to do some predictions for 2023. But anyway, I want to thank you all for coming. If you like if you like what you saw, share it with five people. If you hated what you saw, share it with five of your enemies. Equal opportunity here. If you're watching from Facebook, please be sure to hit that like button and that uh, jo- that uh, follow button. And if you're watching from YouTube, let's see if I can line this up. There it is. Boom! Right, right there. Right there is that little ghost with the magnifying glass. And uh, if you click on that, it'll have you subscribe to our videos. We've got more than 460 videos sitting over there. And I think you'll find something you like. But anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. And I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific with medium Nancy Matz. Have yourself a great one. <laughs>